Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina is simply the best way to keep on top of the most important news from China in just a few minutes a day with our free daily email newsletter, curated with terrific skill by Jeremy Goldcorn and his marvelous team, as well as our handy smartphone app, and of course, our website, SupChina.com. It truly is a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and I'm in Cambridge, Massachusetts at the Fairbank Center, where I've had a delightful time catching up with old friends and making some new ones. Joining me from his home in Nashville, Tennessee, is the irrepressible Jeremy Goldcorn. Don't even think of trying to repress this man, because it just won't work. <laughs> Jeremy, how the hell are you, man? <laughs> I'm doing very well. I'm doing very well. Let's get on with the show. We've had the most terrible technical difficulties and we yes, need yes, to yes. record third Too time is sweet. a charm yes so today mr jeremy my friend we are going to talk about magne uh, no not going to talk about magnitsky act. we are going to talk about the issue of adoption net tourist has nothing to do with magnitsky act <laughs> groan i said get oh. on with the show all right, right. Okay, on with the show. So, so seriously, we are talking about the issue of adoption of Chinese children, uh, primarily to the U.S., of course, and uh, about the many issues that surround this phenomenon. And to talk with us about this are two women who were themselves born in China and adopted at the very young age of you know, just a few months by American couples and raised in the U.S. Ray Winborn was among the very earliest of children adopted by American parents. In 1993, uh, only a few months after this kind of transnational adoption became legal. I should add that uh, Ray came up to Jeremy and me uh, when we were doing a show in D.C. afterward and suggested that we do a show about adoption, and we thought that was a splendid idea. Uh, and after talking to her and finding out just what a thoughtful and well-spoken woman she is, um, we insisted that she be our guest and not some putative authority on the subject. So, Ray Winborn... Welcome to Seneca. Hi, Kaiser. Thank you for having me. Also joining us is Charlotte Cotter, who is president of China Children International, the first online support and networking organization for young adults adopted from China. Charlotte, thank you so much for traveling to Boston to join us for the show. Hi, Jeremy and Kaiser. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, so perhaps let's, let's start with a little bit of a background about each of you. I mean, I've given just a little bit of the barest bones of details, but um, so Ray, you were adopted in 93. Uh, what about you, Charlotte? I was adopted in January of 1995. Okay, in, in 95. And how old were you? I was five months. And, and Ray, you were? Nine months. Nine months old. Okay. And so neither of you have any kind of a memory, of course, of, of China. So you grew up completely in America. Um, and, and so let's talk about who your adoptive parents were. Uh, Ray, you said you, you grew up in, in Colorado, right? Yeah. So uh, I was adopted by a lovely family from Iowa, uh, but we we moved to Colorado when I was fairly young. So I consider myself to be from Colorado, particularly in a small rural town, Durango, in the southwest corner. So there weren't a lot of people who looked like me or even minorities in that area. 
And you folks are just good old solid Midwestern people. Right, exactly. Just sort of solid middle class Americans. Yes, we, we ate hamburger helper a lot. And, and casseroles and casseroles <laughs> and shake and bake oh yeah shake oh, and bake really? was a shake and bake was a I actually you know, just key. drove through Durango a couple of months ago I can testify that I didn't see any Chinese people there <laughs> <laughs> that's the lovely part of the country that's like that near four corners right I mean, right yeah so if you drive in 30 minutes you know one way you hit mountains 30 minutes another is plains and then another direction you have desert and another you have like red cliffs yeah wow. so it's it's a great place to grow up but no, no other Chinese people. <laughs> Charlotte, you had a, a kind of an, an unusual parentage situation. Tell, tell us about that. Right. So I have two moms, and they both were born in Massachusetts. And then I also grew up in Massachusetts in Newton, a city near Boston. And I guess in contrast to what Ray was saying, Newton did have a fairly large population of Asian Americans. Right. So... You were adopted, but you said you were adopted by two moms. You just sort of tossed that out there. But I can't imagine that the apparatchiks who man the, the adoption uh, services in China would have smiled on a lesbian couple adopting children from China. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you're right. So what happened was that one of my moms adopted me individually, and then my other mom went back two years later and adopted my sister, who's also from China, and she came home at one year old. Oh, wow. Oh, so, and, and, and interestingly, you actually have a sibling too, right, Ray? Yes, I have a brother. Um, he was actually adopted from the same orphanage that I was, but he was adopted about a year later. Um, he's six months older than me, so we kind of grew up in a faux twin situation, or everyone <laughs> thought we were twins, and we were extremely angry when they said that. We're like, no, we're not <laughs> twins. Um, can we kind of uh, go a big picture a little bit and talk about the basics of adoption from China to the United States? Uh, Ray, um, you know, I think uh, Kaiser mentioned you were among the very first children to have been adopted from China. Um, so when did it actually start? And, uh, you know, how did uh, the adoption trends play out for the next uh, couple of decades? Yeah, so China officially opened up to transnational adoption in 1992 uh, and has grown steadily, peaking at around 2005. And then in recent years has slowed down pretty dramatically to a very small trickle. Note that this is a phenomenon that's happened to a lot of sending countries, uh, so not necessarily a China-only trend. Right. I mean, adoption from China is pretty closely linked in the minds of most people with the, the whole one-child policy uh, and, and the abandonment of baby girls in a society with a deeply rooted preference for boys. So what, do you know what the ratio is of adopted boys to adopted girls? I mean, so Charlotte, you actually operate an organization, CCI, China's Children International. Um, in your membership, are there many boys? We do have some, but very few. I'd say it's about um, 90 to 95 percent um, female. Oh, wow. Wow. That, that, that overwhelmingly female. Ray, your family is somewhat unusual, I believe, in that you have an adopted brother from China, too. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and the differences between uh, boys and girls who, who were adopted from China? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I do know some families who ha also have boys, but they usually have some sort of special needs. So that can vary from a smaller kind of medical issue to a more serious medical issue or even a kind of a more mental issue. And that, I think, plays out in the Chinese preference for boys is that usually they're, they're going to be more special needs. Um, my brother in particular had a cleft palate, which is not necessarily a, a serious 
disability. But for, you know, a low income Chinese family, that that can be something that that is prohibitive. Right. I, I, can, I can imagine. As China grew richer and, and more powerful and, and as adoptions trickled off, I guess in, in more recent years, most of the adoptions that were coming out of China were of special needs children, whether girls or boys. Is that is that right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, uh, yeah, a majority of the children who are adopted nowadays are, are special needs. OK, let, let me get to the, the question that really kind of always comes up for me uh, when I think about uh, the the issue of transnational adoption and specifically adoption from China. You know, from the mid-90s onward, I would get questions pretty regularly, uh, either from people who had adopted children or for people who's, you know, whose friends or, or who, had, who, who reached out to me as somebody who knew something about China. And they would be questions like, what Chinese dialect should I teach my uh, my, my my baby? Or what are some good fairy tales or, or bedtime stories from China that I should be reading to my children? Or, or you know, what are the classic Chinese children's books? And it would, it would be stuff like this. And, uh, you know, back then, I mean, it was sort of the, the time I lived in. Or I, I thought to myself, well, I, I'm, this is puzzling because, you know, why should a child adopted from China be exposed to that culture, that language, the country of, of their birth? I mean, isn't it sort of the right of a child in America to be just an ordinary American? Aren't we supposed to be sort of notionally colorblind? Aren't we? I mean, should we, um, shouldn't we respect their, their, the likely, you know, demand that they'd be treated no differently than their biological siblings or their American born schoolmates? I mean, so what is now the current wisdom on this, on this issue? And, and has it evolved over time? And, and how did, I mean, what, what informed this? Uh, I think that a lot of it comes from uh, pushback from Korean adoptees, um, who a lot of them have grown up and spoken out on this issue. Oh. Um, and a lot of them, I think, were raised uh, with the notion that the parents didn't see race. There was nothing different about them. Um, and they grow up. they grew up and kind of were confused and conflicted about how this very important part of their identity has been overlooked. Um, so I think they have spoken out about educating parents, especially ado- international adoption, um, about learning something about the country um, and, rem- and reminding the children about their roots. Yeah, so maybe you guys can tell us a little bit about your own decisions, your own processes of, of reconnecting with, with your Chinese, I mean, I don't know what to call it heritage, your biological heritage, let's call it. Um, Ray, do you want to start? How did you start getting interested? What did your parents do, first of all, uh, in terms of trying to connect you with China? Uh, what are some of the sillier things that you were subject to? Because I'm sure there were some. And, uh, and and how did you take start taking that interest? Yeah, so I guess my parents, even though they did take the view that you should introduce culture to your child, it, they kind of had the more minimal minimal approach um, then. Mm. And I think that was one, a factor of where we grew up and the resources that we had access to, uh, as well as, you know, oh, you should be more American or they, 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 they had the idea that I think leaning more towards the previous, yeah, yeah the, the previous kind of generation of transnational adoptee parents, where it was more a focus on you are American first. And what, what, how old were they when they adopted you? Just may I ask? Uh, yeah, they were in, the, they were 35. Five-ish. Okay. So they're, they're baby boomers. <laughs> um, right. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, we we did the yearly Chinese New Year event um, with other adoptees in our community. We went to 
eat out at Chinese restaurants probably more regularly than others. What was your sense? I mean, did you feel this is awkward? This is weird? Or did you feel like, no, this is great? I mean, I'm. Uh, did you feel any kind of sense of connection to, you know, the, the the lion dance you were singing or the firecrackers or the the songs? Yeah. So I maybe I'm just a weirdo, but uh, as long as I could remember, I wanted to learn Chinese. Ah. And I remember one of my dream jobs was to be like a Chinese translator. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'd, I'd always been like, mom, I want to learn Chinese. I want to go back to China. Um, and oh, wow. their usual response was, where are you going to learn Chinese? And we don't have money to go back to China. So, or, or you need to be older. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, usually it'll be like, oh, we'll wait until you're older. So I, you know, save up you know, whenever I got birthday money, it always go towards my my China fund. Uh, um, and, and what about you, Charlotte? What about your your process of sort of reconnecting uh, with your Chinese biological heritage? Sure, and I guess I'll preface this um, with something that Ray made a really good point that the experiences of Chinese adoptees are just so diverse, yeah. and especially as somebody who um, has interacted with a lot of them through my organization. Um, so I can only speak to my own experiences, and I don't want to or I can't represent all Chinese adoptees. So this is just for me. Um, But so when I was younger, I think it was a lot of having Chinese sort of artifacts around, maybe like a Chinese scroll or Chinese painting. And then I also had a Chinese tutor when I was younger um, and then eventually went to a bunch of Chinese language camps. Oh, wow. They went full bore with you. I mean, they totally they 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 really worked on the whole uh, I mean, and it paid off because the two of you are, are quite unusual in that, you know, you are very well connected. Do either of you know of adopted children who are resentful at having been fed a bunch of China stuff as kids, especially perhaps because it came from white parents who may not themselves have much of a connection to China? Yeah. So I don't know particularly of anyone who felt resentful the kind of deep-seated resent that, you know, <laughs> is particularly harmful. Um, you know, parents make you do a lot of things. So I think to some degree, everyone resents their parents doing <laughs> yeah, something, right? Jeremy, I bet we have a lot of ABC friends who are pretty resentful about Saturday morning Chinese school, right? Right. Every single one I know <laughs> yeah. is resentful about uh, but, Saturday but morning Chinese school. But they come around to it, right? Although they change their minds when they right. try and learn Chinese exactly. as adults. That's the story exactly. of my life. Yeah, right so there. I... I mean, I think there is a large majority of adoptees who are probably not as interested as, say, I was, but I wouldn't say resentful. To go back a little bit, um, you know, to the question of why parents of adoptive children from China encourage them to learn Chinese, I I know... Uh, tens of thousands, I think, uh, of babies have been uh, adopted from Russia. Do either of you know if parents of Russian adopted babies try to connect them with their Russian heritage? Or is it just because Chinese babies are obviously not white and that's going to cause a need for some kind of explanation at some point? So it's common practice now to give them a dose of Chinese culture. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't have a very large representative sample, but of the very few Russian adoptees that I know, or I guess more white presenting adoptees that I know, um, there's not that push for, you know, exploration into their culture. Yeah, that's a really interesting question, Jeremy. I hadn't really thought about that. I mean, it, I guess it, it, it is. I mean, they, they can just pass for white, right? 
and they're not going to, you know, they're not going to feel like the this. I why do I look different from all the other kids? Right. Uh, that's that's interesting. Right, and I think that you know goes back to kind of what we were saying of the history, um, you know, with the the Korean adoptees that have really pushed for that, as well as um, we forgot to mention, uh, you know, the the black community too was very much a force in uh, making sure that uh, when black children are adopted domestically or from international that you know one that they are if not able to be kind of paired with a black family that there is a degree of exposure to you know black black culture culture. yes fascinating so how common i mean you guys are i said you're unusual but how common is it for children who are adopted from china to, to really take that keen interest in china itself i mean the two of you you've both lived and worked in china you both feel a very strong connection to her. i mean you know charlotte in your case you are are very upfront about your interest in bridge building you speak excellent chinese uh, are you guys in any sense typical i mean is it just incredibly rare to find adoptees who are as engaged in china uh, as you guys are I think we're definitely on the sort of extreme end of the scale, but really, like I said, it runs the runs the gamut. And I know some Chinese adoptees who could have less interest in China and really don't identify with that. Um, and I know some adoptees who are now just kind of coming into college and getting really interested in learning Chinese and going to China. So I think there are a lot of different forms. And what about you, Ray? Yeah, I mean, of the adoptees that I've grown up with, uh, I believe I'm the only one who has really pursued an interest in China to really any degree. Um, I have a friend who swears that she's more like Latin because, you know, her interest in in Spanish and Latin America is so much more ingrained into her than than. Chinese culture. Um, So I think, yeah, it it runs the range. I think also, you know, we're still a fairly young community, you know, with the peak in 2005. So they're probably high school around now. So, I mean, perspectives change, interests change. Um, I know that, you know, college was a huge part of kind of forming my interests like deeper and, and really being exposed to different things. So who, who's to say that, five, ten years from now, how many adoptees will be living in China as expats? <laughs> yeah, it, it's so different you know, now. You expe- know, that, that doesn't sound that different to me from uh, American-born Chinese, exactly, from exactly. you know, ethnically Chinese families. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and I think the same, some of the same factors are in play, like the rise of China. I mean, I look at my, my children, you know, I think immigrants from a couple of decades ago uh, who would have come over to, to the states at my kids age they wouldn't have dug in the way that my daughter has and and been just sort of ferociously proud of 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 china and and it's it's it's, it's interesting but we'll, we'll get we'll get to that yeah i we, we, i have a question for you charlotte about the this organization that you've co-founded china's children international what's its mission how many people are involved what are you up to Right. So we are a group, um, a support and networking group for Chinese adoptees around the world. Uh, we were founded in 2011. Um, and our real inspiration um, came from there's a network of, of families with children from China around America and around the world. And they have like local branches and such. And we were thinking as Chinese adoptees get older, um, that it was really time that we could create a community of our own. Um, so the dream was really to have a community that was created by and for Chinese adoptees. Yeah, we're still we're still not 
the a huge organization. Um, we have about three thousand members. That's not is, small. <laughs> <laughs> which is not the entire eighty thousand, but it's some of them. No, that's that's it's fascinating. Um, so, what kinds of issues? I mean, when you say you know your support organization, what sorts of issues are you are routinely confronted with? What sorts of what are the common things that people bring up on on your in your in your conversations? That's a great question. I think a lot of them have to do with. Let's see, I guess identity, national identity, um, and how they connect to either their home countries, and they're not necessarily American also, um, or China. There's a lot of discussion about racism and race culture, um, especially being a lot of times in a transracial family. There's discussion also about trips back to China, and also most recently there's been a lot of discussion about going back and searching for birth parents. Yeah, birth parents, that's that's the fascinating topic. How common is that for adoptees to travel back? trying to look for the president and have either of you done it um yeah so it's becoming a lot more common um maybe a couple like a couple of years ago there were very very few who um went back and there really is no precedent as to how you can kind of go back and search given that we have usually have very little information about our backgrounds but it's been growing in the past years and people have been getting really interested in it yeah so now i guess the question is what 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 do people hope to find i mean what is it to satisfy some just basic curiosity is it and and what good comes well what goes comes and what are some of the perils what are some of the pitfalls of, of that whole process i mean yeah I, that, I mean i'm curious about the perils i suppose because it sounds like it could be i mean it would be a very emotional experience absolutely sure well i mean i think the motivations are different for everybody um me personally um i've searched i was I guess I'd really always wanted to meet them, see whether I looked like them, honestly. And I wanted to ask them about why I had been abandoned, because that was always like a large hole in my story. But yeah, I mean, it's difficult on the one hand, because they're right, like I said, there's no precedent, there's no like set way to go about it. So you kind of have to use your own resources. And then secondly, also, yeah, it's extremely emotionally taxing. And it takes a lot of economic resources as well. Um, So I've been really lucky to have been able to undertake this search. And were you successful? I was, in fact, successful. Can um, you talk about that? I mean, I'd love to hear. Yeah. So last summer, a friend and I decided to go back and search for our birth parents, kind of on a whim. And we put out actually a poster on Weibo, um, which is the China, Chinese social media platform that we were searching. And we were hoping that the Chinese netizens would help us spread the word around. And it really it really took off. And my friend was searching for her foster family, and she had a picture on the poster. And then less than 24 hours after the poster was um, put up, they contacted her through through WeChat. Um, oh, wow. It was pretty amazing. Wow. And, and what about you? And then I, so I worked because I didn't really know anybody in the area. So I was contacted after the poster went um, viral by a Chinese reporter from the local area, which is, I'm from uh, Zhenjiang City in Jiangsu. Um, uh, I actually, I know that place. Oh, I've, yeah. I've played a show there. <laughs> Good place. Yeah. Um, and so she worked on the ground, honestly, a lot, like without my permission, but um, she worked a lot on the ground getting a lot of information. And what happened was that I had a note in my file that listed my birth date and my birth time. And then what I didn't know was that there was also something stuck to it. That that was a little piece of paper that had the hospital in which I was born. So with the information of when, when I was born and what date and the hospital, she was able to track down the records. And then from the records, she was able to find their address. And luckily they still lived there. So she oh, wow. literally went knocking on their door and then she called me up and said, your birth parents are on the phone. <laughs> 
Oh, wow. So how did that conversation go? <laughs> it was it was a lot. <laughs> were they surprised that you spoke Chinese? Yeah, I think so. I mean, they were really surprised. They didn't know that I had been internationally adopted. Oh, um, wow. They thought that they thought that they had made an arrangement with a third party to send me to another family that they knew um, that had military connections that they thought could raise me. So they didn't know that I ended up in Norfolk, and they didn't know that I ended up in America. So that was a huge shock for them. Oh, my God. That's that's remarkable. So who who were they? And then did you find out why you were abandoned? Did you find out any of this stuff? Yeah. So um, they are actually from the city of Huai'an, um, which I didn't know. But I was born in Zhenjiang, so they moved from different cities to have. Um, so I right, So I have two older sisters, um, which makes me the third sister. And then I have a younger brother, which I'm not very surprised about. And what happened was they were moving from city to city to have all these different kids to try to avoid the policy. Um, I think they still did have some sort of ramifications from that. And then when they had me, they just decided they thought they didn't have the economic resources um, to be able to have a third girl, um, and especially considering that they still wanted to have a son. So what they did was they arranged to a third party to have me sent to um, another family. I think the third party was because um, I think the... The adopting families in China might be worried about the birth families coming back for the kid um, later on. Oh wow, that's just fascinating. And and what did that? What did you feel? How did you feel? Yeah, it was it was it was wild. Um, sorry, let me think. Was it was it closure? Did it feel like like you you got your answers? Did it satisfy your curiosity, or did it just open up a million more questions for you? It did. I mean, I got, I did get that part of the story back, but I think, you know, it wasn't the perfect ending. I mean, I didn't really know what to expect at the end, so I hadn't really like a picture of that. But once I found them, I sort of didn't really know what to do with it. So there has been a lot of like kind of feelings that I haven't yet sort of like addressed or worked through. Yeah, yeah going on. Well, that's why we're here. <laughs> <laughs> It, it is interesting. So I actually have never um, tried to find my parents and, and have had, I guess, a lower interest. I've been curious, but it's never been an important part of kind of discovering my identity. But, you know, there's there's this story, this kind of fairy tale story that, I mean, it, it makes a good story, right, is finding your your parents, but that it doesn't necessarily mean closure and it and it can open up a lot of different things. And I think you know, it's good that other adoptees who have had that experience share it because there is this idea that, oh, I'm going to go find my parents and it's going to be this like magical moment um, and everything's going to turn out great. And uh, I think people should go in with eyes wide open and right. understanding that it's a lot more complex than that. Right, right. I think any journey to explore your past is a bit like that. I mean, my uh, uncle visited Riga in Latvia to see, you know, our family's uh, place. My father refuses to have anything to do with Eastern Europe. You know, people have different attitudes and whatever experience you have is uh, it's not uh, going to answer everything. Well, there's a gold corn shtetl somewhere near Riga, Latvia. There used to be a gold corn shtetl. The reason they left is because somebody burnt the shtetl down. Oh, man. Um, 
But um, enough of the shtetls. Uh, can I ask uh, both you, Ray and Charlotte, I mean, both of you have spent time working and living in China. What kind of a reception did you have? I mean, I, I know it's common for American-born Chinese uh, to have certain experiences such as being castigated for you know, not speaking Chinese very well. Uh, but is there something extra that you experience as a, you know, a transnationally adopted person? Yeah, so I mean, I think in general, the Chinese adoptee experience and the uh, Chinese American experience is is very similar. I think the Chinese adoptee experience is kind of like the Chinese American experience on steroids, and that's because you know we don't have that kind of grounding experience with our families that. Chinese Americans can take with them and, and this kind of basic understanding. So, you know, I remember when I was in China, I was so terrified of speaking Chinese and being exposed for, you know, <laughs> being a Chinese adoptee and what that would bring up. And, you know, I very you know, quickly had to learn how to say I'm I'm Chinese adoptee and, you know, like my parents are white, you know, so... <laughs> Was there any stigma attached to it? I can't imagine. Actually, that. I mean, the reception that I had was fairly positive. They do the like, oh, your parents are so uh, like they're such angels and like the, you're so lucky. And, and the kind of I mean, you, you hear that from Americans as well. Yeah. I mean, it, it sounds different though, coming from Chinese and coming from Americans, though, right? Yeah, I think um, Americans, they should know better than to kind of say those things. <laughs> um, so I always give a little bit of uh, leeway for for Chinese people and be like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I'm very, very lucky, very lucky. <laughs> Charlotte, what are, let's talk about some of the best and the worst experiences you've had in China, uh, you know, that, that maybe relate to your st- status as, as an adoptee. What, what were some of the... Um, let's see. Well, I guess... It is frustrating. I'm, I'm sure, as as Jeremy, Jeremy mentioned as well, um, the expectation that you should speak perfect Chinese if you look Chinese, um, and the kind of confusion there. So I've had a lot of very awkward taxi drives where I'd have 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 to explain my entire life story um, in about five minutes. So that's been definitely difficult, and I think. When I went with a lot of foreigners, I think this sort of made it more pronounced. Um, and I did feel a little bit frustrated, honestly, with kind of the lack of understanding of like Asian Americans and sort of that sort of diversity. Yeah, I, I think you bring up a good point in that uh, your story really is kind of forefront and center in a, most of your interactions that you have with locals. And I mean, now, you know, in a professional sense, you know, when I've gone over to China or Hong Kong, I mean, it's, it's a common question, you know, like, wh- where are you from? Why do you have a white last name? And and I've you're, always, you know, you're married. You're yeah, so young. Oh, you're married. Yeah. So it, it's been interesting navigating that and you know, sometimes I want to just say, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm ABC and, and leave it at that. But I feel like <laughs> I'm not that good of a liar or <laughs> that I'm kind of betraying a little bit of myself. So I usually do say that I'm I am adopted. But it's interesting that that kind of dynamic plays out so often. So Ray just said that it's sort of the Chinese American experience on steroids. Charlotte, do you, do you, do you does that resonate with you? Yeah, it it does. I totally see it now. I mean, I totally see it. Yeah, it I definitely mean, does. It's like it's so many of the same things that we experience, you know, as as Chinese Americans, but it's it's really amplified. Oh my god! I mean, that's 
maybe the most interesting um, encapsulation of, of the adoptee experience I've, I've, I've yet encountered. And yeah, and, and a lot of these, like Jeremy and I have commented many times that this is just like, you know, what it is for ABCs, but, but yeah, but, but yeah. Same, same, but different. So. Same Thailand. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, I, I also want to mention uh, kind of more of a, maybe a positive story since uh, I guess stereotypes is, is not necessarily the most positive experience. Right. Um, so I actually worked at an orphanage for three months when I was in China and that really opened my eyes to, I guess, a lot of, well, the other side of the story, which you don't really hear about and is not really spoken about. And, you know, when I was young and I don't know if you were kind of given the same story, but you hear that, you came from a place of abandonment and uh, you're out of the love of your adoptive parents came into a place of America that, you know, was a, kind of a win-win for everyone. But I don't think that's necessarily, or I know that's not necessarily true. And, you know, I, I see a lot of love on that other side from either the, you know, the parents that had had to give up their children a lot of times through, you know, forces that they couldn't control, the foster parents uh, and the IEs that take care of uh, these orphans. It's really heartbreaking to find out that, you know, the, some of these IEs are not allowed to say goodbye to the children before they're sent away or given to their adoptive parents because they're so distraught that they would upset the adoptive parents. Um, so it's, again, it's it's a lot more of a complex picture than I think the the evil mainstream media puts it out to be. <laughs> who are the families who adopt Chinese children? Are there any generalizations you could make about them? Some kind of demographic profile that describes a significant majority of them? Or are they just all kinds of Americans dotted all over the country? Uh, yeah, so the, there have been studies of uh, perspectives from the adoptee parents' point of view. And I, I can't recall them off the top of my head, but I, I had been researching this in the past. And uh, you actually you know, did a master your, your your thesis on this, right? Yeah, it's on, a, my on. senior's honor thesis, but it's undergraduate, so you know, take well, it with a grain of right? salt. <laughs> it's it's no PhD, but yeah. So they're usually wealthier, you know, upper middle class. Uh -huh. uh, they're usually older, late thirties, uh, late thirties, forties, right? And I guess, I don't know, I, I think that's the only <laughs> two characteristics that I can I'm, think I'm of. I'm going to guess, bat, like, um, Jews are overrepresented. <laughs> I'm just going to guess that. There, I really mean, think? yeah, there are many, actually, of uh, Chinese Jewish, Jewish adoptees. <laughs> yes, my mom is Jewish. Both of them? Well, only one. Oh, okay, see. I remember there, a couple of years back, there was a New York Times article about, like, uh, a bat mitzvah ceremony where I think there were about five Chinese-looking girls, you know, being bat mitzvahed um, from Jewish families. Yeah, I think that <laughs> so, story may have I informed my, my prejudice. Lily, I totally remember that story. That was great. <laughs> uh, I mean, adopted children, pretty much no matter, you know, when it was that they were born, have all watched China's rise. They can't have been unaware of it. Uh, so how has the rising sort of wealth and, and status of, of China uh, impacted the whole experience of adoptees? I mean, you know, sitting here watching China, I mean, it's no longer a country that you're ashamed of. It's no longer mired in poverty, but it's actually, you know, uh, a, an influencing force in the world. And it's there's a lot to be proud of, right? I mean, has that changed the adoptee experience? I'm sure it has, but how? Yeah, I think that 
There is the tension between feeling really proud about where one comes from, um, but then also feeling like there's really no connection there. Um, like like we said, when a lot of Chinese adoptees go back expecting to find home, um, which is all like ABCs as well, they find something that's very alien um, and they don't really know how to relate to it. Um, but I think people have been proud of watching China's rise. Um, I know a lot of uh, adoptees comment on the Olympics um, and how mm, they're both, they're rooting yeah. for both teams. Um, I do that too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Again, the Asian American uh, yeah. experience, I'm so um, And uh, yeah, I think, I mean, I think, I think they're, they're sensitive to it. I think when they hear China bashing in the media, something strikes a chord, even if they don't really know why. Huh. Interesting. No, that's that's really interesting. Yeah. And we shouldn't report this too loudly because it'll reinforce this this crazy notion that the Chinese have that they have claimed to all of us for our blood. <laughs> 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 yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I remember the Beijing Olympics and, and being very you know proud of that moment and very excited. Um, I actually went back to China for the first time uh, the winter after the Olympics happened. So that was kind of a, a great time to go. My first, you know, journey back to China. I think for me, you know, professionally because I work with China kind of in my job that's always been it's it's been both a personal passion but also a huge professional interest and and a lot of that stems from you know China is uh, such a crazy place and so many things are happening and, and it's where to be fascinating Sometimes when I think of transnational adoption, you know, I picture Madonna jetting off in her private plane to Malawi uh, to adopt uh, a very photo-friendly child. And I wonder if there isn't always some element of the white savior going on in adoption from developing world countries. Uh, it might be entirely well-intentioned. And, you know, I'm sure in 99% of cases, it is perhaps even in Madonna's case. But there does linger a little bit, um, you know, there is a power dynamic, which I think we mentioned briefly before. Are there devoutly religious people who adopt with the intention perhaps of saving a soul? Or can you talk about that power dynamic? There's definitely uh, a religious aspect for a lot of adoptee parents. Um, actually, the founding organization of Chinese, or sorry, of Korean adoptees, Holt International, you know, came from a religious family who wanted to adopt uh, Korean uh, children because of a path that they felt um, through their religion. Uh, that's not necessarily the case for everyone. That being said, I think, you know, the narrative, the underlying implying narrative that I hear a lot and is threaded throughout the mainstream narrative of adoptees is this idea of the white savior complex. And I think that's why it's so important to have adoptee voices, because up till now, it's a lot of the parents. And I mean, good intentioned or not, that's kind of how either they see it themselves or unintentionally how other people see themselves. Now, you, you guys are all coming, you know, into your adulthood and, and you have, uh, you know, loud, clear, articulate voices. Um, I mean, because, you know, look, you're, you're one of the oldest ones and, and you're only you're uh, you're 25, right? 24, 25, right? Right, right. And this is I mean, these are ideas and concepts that, you know, you don't think about when you're young. Right. And and then I mean, even sometimes in college and it's and it's only with a bit of distance and uh, the perspective, the adult perspective that 
you really become cognizant of these, the way that stories are told and the way that your stories were told and you know, like taking that critical eye. Charlotte, do you, what about you? Do you, do you feel anything about that, that racial and power dynamic uh, that's at work that's, that, that creates sort of lingering resentments or any kind of, 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 of a problematic Sure. Yeah, I definitely understand it a lot more. I'm seeing it a lot more now. Um, I think I was I was a very naive child, <laughs> um, so I really didn't think that much about adoption um, or like the sort of larger power structures. But when I did start getting involved in the community, I was hearing a lot of voices um, speaking up about that sort of inequality, and it challenged me to rethink what I think about adoption. And it's constantly changing. Yeah, I mean that's great, and I I, I look forward to you know. A, a lot of literature coming out on this as people are, are, are sharing their stories. And I hope that you guys both point us to um, to stuff that you come across. Because, you know, as, as people who are paying attention to what's being talked about in the whole discourse on this topic, uh, I'm, I'm, I'd love to keep an ear open to that. Uh, but let's change the subject here and talk a little bit about adoption within China, adoption by Chinese people of, of Chinese. Uh, we, we talked about this becoming, you know, slightly more common. Wealth is obviously one factor. The end of the one-child policy is driving this increase. Is there just sort of less social stigma about adoption? Is there sort of, is this something that, uh, what, what are we seeing um happening in China? Because you've worked in this area now. I think that domestic adoption is still uh, more uncommon than common. Um, there still is the stigma um, just within, you know, that you need to have a child kind of, of your own and not of, you know, someone else's. Um, that being said, uh, I think that there probably are more. Don't hold me to that as far as solid research or, or any statistics, but I believe that the government is trying to encourage it more. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. I would imagine that just like philanthropy, which is only in the last few years started to become a thing that rich Chinese people do, you know, it's going to take time, but it's inevitable that it will happen. Mm -hmm. I mean, have you guys, do you know any local friends who have adopted domestically? I I know local friends who have looked into it. Uh, nobody's actually done it. Uh, it turns out that it's actually a kind of, you know, there's a lot of paperwork. There's a lot of, uh, it, it's quite involved. Uh, my wife has a couple of friends who have been unable to have children, and they've looked into, it, it turns out to be incredibly complicated, but hey, you know, what isn't bureaucratically in, in China? Indeed. So before we get to recommendations, is there any advice, Charlotte and Ray, that you would like to give parents of adoptees or any adoptees themselves who may be listening? Yeah, just, you know, parting words of wisdom from Charlotte and from, from Ray. Of course, it's so hard to make kind of general um, recommendations just because every adoptee is so different. Um, but I do think personally um, that I really did benefit from the early exposure um, to Chinese culture, mm, yeah. um, even if it was perhaps a little bit superficial. Um, maybe it wasn't really like the most accurate depiction, but I think intent does really matter. And they did try their best. And now I mean, I guess it's it's up to the child whether they take to it or not. Um, and I think they don't force it. Um, but make but that, yeah, that choice available. Yeah, just right. so, yeah, it's yeah. A, they make it available. That's awesome. Yeah, Ray. 
Yeah, I, I agree completely with what Charlotte said, you know, that every child is their own. Um, and so it's hard to give, you know, you must make sure that they learn Chinese <laughs> by sixth grade. But for adoptee parents, I think it's really important to do your research and listen to the Seneca. adoptee voices. Listen to Seneca. <laughs> listen to Seneca. Uh, <laughs> if you haven't already. Uh, and uh, listen to adoptee voices. Uh, you know, that's not just limited to Chinese adoptees, but, you know, Korean adoptees and other transnational adoptees because they have a lot to say. Um, and, you know, they would, you know, benefit greatly for, from hearing their stories. Uh, you, you guys have both given me some great resources on this stuff, and I'm going to share that on the, on the, uh, the website. Um, you know, links to Charlotte's organization, links to a lot of the documentary films that you, you guys, this is really, really great stuff. So, yeah, um, mm -hmm. you know, there are more and more resources and places where they can hear those adoptee voices that you think are so important now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then for adoptees, I think uh, I would recommend to, you know, follow your interests, whether it be China or not. Um, but also, you know, you don't have to package it up with a nice little bow. You know, the, there can be points where you feel, you know, really sad about what happened or really happy about what happened or just not knowing what to feel at all about what happened. And all of those emotions are completely valid. So don't feel like you need to do one certain thing because you're adoptee. Um, or pursue something because you know this is what others have said that you should. That's 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 great advice. And 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 Ray and Charlotte, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on Seneca. Uh, stick around for just a few more minutes, and uh, let's make some recommendations for our listeners. Uh, so uh, before we get to recommendations, I want to remind our listeners that the Cynical Podcast is powered by SubChina. Check out the app and subscribe to the newsletter at subchina.com. You can follow SubChina on Twitter at, at SubChinaNews and on Facebook at facebook.com slash SubChinaNews. And if you like the Cynical Podcast, by all means, please go leave us a positive review on the Apple iTunes Store or on uh, Google Play or wherever it is that you go to review apps. This really helps and it, it really does mean a lot to us. On to recommendations. Jeremy, kick us off today. Okay, I've got two, and they both are from uh, the huge pile of reading matter I have for some upcoming podcasts. Oh, good. So uh, the one is Little Soldiers, subtitled An American Boy, A Chinese School, and the Global Race to Achieve um, by Lenora Chu, who uh, her and her husband, Rob Schmitz, who's been on our show a few times, sent their son to a uh, an elite Chinese kindergarten in Shanghai. Uh, and it's about that experience and her research into the Chinese education system. And I'm enjoying it very much. It's great. And oh, the other is called book. the China. It's good. Yeah. And the other is called the China Questions, Critical Insights into a Rising Power. It is edited by Jennifer Rudolph and Michael so uh, Sony. Uh, uh, Sony. How do you pronounce his name, Kaiser? You know, I, I, I don't actually know. Uh, you know, I just Sony. saw him. Like, Sony. S-Z-O-N-Y. I. And it's in the form... The book is in the form of, uh, I think, 36 questions, uh, all kinds of questions. Will urbanization save the Chinese economy or destroy it? Uh, is the Communist Party uh, legitimate? Can China's high growth continue? Can Ch China and Japan ever get along? And other questions such as what is the importance of the great historical novels? 
And each uh, question is answered in the form of a shortish essay. And at the end of it, uh, many of them, you basically get the conclusion that, well, if things go well, it'll be this way. And if they don't go well, it'll be that way, which is a fair enough conclusion to most things in China, but all very intelligently written and well worth reading. Yeah, I'm um, really, it's, 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 it's excellent. And the format is perfect. You know, just sort of, uh, you know, they, they literally, they take 15 minutes each to read. They're really, really good. Uh, excellent recommendations. Ray, why don't you go next? What do you have for us? Yeah, so uh, as I mentioned before, um, kind of one of my huge interests is just the Chinese language. And um, given that I didn't have the opportunity to learn about it or learn it when I was younger, I started in college and have continued uh, studying it after I graduated. Uh, I think one of my big struggles was, you know, getting over the fear and perceptions of others and and within myself of how well I should speak Chinese. And I had about a year ago discovered this private tutoring platform called italki. So it's italk. Yeah, it's based out of Shanghai. I know the guy who started yeah. it, Kevin. Um, so I found a great tutor there. And it's honestly, I feel like I have improved more with my tutor via you know Skype uh, versus my classes in college. So for anyone interested, and I'm sure there's a lot of viewers that are interested in improving their Chinese, um, highly recommend it. It's been a great resource for me. Oh, that's a terrific recommendation. I don't know why I'd never thought to, to recommend that before, because I actually know that some of the people involved, the people who funded it, and the people who are, it's, it's great. It's great. Charlotte, what do you have for us? For those viewers who are interested in learning more about adoption, I have two movies that I really like. Um, one of them is called Somewhere Between, um, which I'm sure that a lot of viewers have, have heard heard of. Um, it's a story of four Chinese adoptees um, and very well to- told. Um, and the second movie is called Twinsters. Um, oh, it's yeah. about a pair of Korean adoptees, um, one of which I'm actually... Sam Foonerman is, is very cool. And and so I would really, that's really good. Even if you're not interested in adoption, it's just a really great movie Twins in general. One of them was raised in, in Norway or something? Yes. Or, or no, one one was raised in France and one was raised in the U.S. So it was literally the parent trap. Oh, oh wow. <laughs> Interesting. Wow, that's uh, fascinating. My recommendation for this week is called The Book of Swindles, uh, which was recently published by Cambridge University Press. Uh, it's a late Ming compendium of uh, by, by this guy named Zhang Yinyu, who uh, his work was translated by Christopher Ray, uh, who has uh, been talked about on this podcast before. He's, he's somebody whose specialty really is Chinese humor, and he brings a lot of, of that panache of the humor to it. And Bruce Rusk, the other translator. Uh, Zhang Yinyu lived, like I said, in the late Ming, and uh, his book, it's called the Pian Jing or the Fang Pian Jing. It's either like the book of how to swindle people or how to prevent being swindled. Same thing, really. It's all about the ways that the grifters and the con men and the charlatans prey upon um, you know the simple folk in the early 17th century. I've only just started it, but it's just it's great. It's I mean it's so f- clever. I mean it's unbelievable some of the things that people come up with. Um, uh, you know the and and. Uh, I think in in this age of of swindlers in in China today, this low trust environment, it may have new currency. Uh, And we're going to try to bring on at least one of the translators for a podcast about this book because of its, like I said, it's it's a current affairs show. But hey, you know, Jeremy, don't you agree it has some uh, relevance to today? 
Uh, yes, it does. Uh, I mean, swindling, yeah. Well, not only in China. There's a, a fair bit of swindling about in uh, these uh, United States of America, too, at the moment. Well, our whole country got swindled in November. Anyway, uh, thank you guys so much. This is so fun. And you guys are wonderful. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Kaiser. Thank you, Jeremy. Let's all stay in touch. And Thank uh, you. Yeah, you guys are great. The Cynical Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldhorn. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash SubChina News and follow us on Twitter at, at SubChina News. Thanks for listening and we will see you next week. Take care and thanks again. <laughs>